Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Sun and Swell. We all love snacks, but I just discovered Sun and Swell's organic, real ingredient snacks. These are the answer for health-conscious people looking for delicious, wholesome snack experiences. Elevate your snacking with great flavor, healthy products, and get this part. Sun and Swell has a real commitment to our planet. Here's how Sun and Swell has redefined snacking. Sun and Swell is the nation's first online grocery store that is offering plastic-free packaging. No one else is doing this. You can even send used packaging back using their compostable send-back program. It's the best of both worlds. It's delicious, 100% plant-based, vegan products, 100% gluten-free, 100% real food, without added preservatives, and every product comes in earth-friendly, compostable packaging. What's more, Sun & Swell is a woman-owned small business. It's also a B corporation, which underscores their social and environmental performance. If you're looking for a more planet-friendly pantry, shop Sun & Swell and get 20% off site-wide when you go to sunandswellfoods.com and use my code WHENDATINGHURTS, all one word, at checkout. That's 20% off your entire order when you use WHENDATINGHURTS at sunandswellfoods.com. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. So today we're speaking with Emily McCoy, who is with Laurel House, the domestic violence agency in Philly, the largest one. And she is not only a domestic violence counselor, she is a licensed professional counselor. And she facilitates Laurel House's financial empowerment program. So we're so fortunate that she stepped up and said she wanted to talk with us today. We're going to definitely hear and learn things that don't come up in most of these interviews with survivors. So this is really great. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back here since it's been a little bit since we've last spoken. Yes, you were somewhere back in the beginning of the of the rack of episodes way back then. So Oh yeah. And and also too at the beginning of well, more towards the beginning of my time as a counselor and at Laurel House. We can jump right in and I mean when you think of an abusive relationship, financial abuse is one that doesn't I don't think get enough airtime. In general terms, kind of the umbrella, what comes to mind when you think of financial abuse? It is one of the forms of abuse, I would say probably the one that is skipped over the most and probably that people don't recognize the most. There's been a lot more attention brought to psychological abuse and verbal abuse. Everybody thinks of physical abuse when we do think of these unhealthy or violent relationships. Financial abuse and we'll get into more specifics later, but essentially it's another way that people, you know, abusers maintain power and control, but using finances in order to do so. So things like preventing someone from going to work, whether that's convincing them to stay home and help raise the family, or they make enough money, hey, you don't need to go to work. Or it could be something kind of more overt where they actually take your car keys and say, you're not going to work today. I don't like the way that you talk to your your male coworkers. You're not going to work today. 
could be changing all the passwords on shared bank accounts. That way you don't have access to it. You can't see what finances are going in and out. So those are some of the most common examples. It looks different in everybody's situation. Like most cases, it's unique to each person. But there are kind of some general tactics that we can we can talk more about as we go along. I have heard way before doing the podcast and just in conversations with people, some of the people I've talked with, maybe one of the cliches or stereotypes is that people who get caught up in these relationships who are being abused, they don't get it. You know, like, how could, how could you not know what was going on? They get stuck. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, couldn't you figure it out? A lot of people I've met are some of the smartest people I've probably ever met. One woman had a big job with a uh, pharmaceutical company. She didn't get what was going on. But, mm. you know, it's just like this guy would come up with, like you said, different ways to park the password somewhere else. Yep. And just say, you know, I mean, you know, he has a big car, maybe bigger than her car. And he's just like, you know, I just don't think you're as good at it as I am. And and once that's gone, you can't just make it come back. Talking this other woman I met, again, very, very bright person. Mm-hmm. And this guy said, look, you know, you come home, you complain about your job now and then. Why don't you just quit? Well, she thought, well, she had only been married to the guy for about a year. This was her second marriage. So she'd been around and she thought, wow, you know, here's a guy who's willing to let me quit this job and I don't have to do that. I could go do something else. And he's like, yeah, you should do that. Then later came to find out that mm, it was not about free time for you. It was about I'm controlling, I'm making the money. And now I'm going to tell you what to do and hand over those credit cards. Yeah, that's actually, that example right there is is one of the more common scenarios that I have heard where, you know, I've got clients coming in and of course we're addressing if there's any issues of physical safety, the verbal, the psychological piece of it. But then the financial aspect is an entirely other situation because as a counselor, I can help you process emotions. Physically, you can heal from injuries. There's not as much that we can do financially. We don't have $20,000 to give out to somebody to help them get out of debt or to help pay for their attorney, uh, the attorney fees that they're drowning in. There's a lot of barriers that come up when it does come to the financial aspect of it. What could someone maybe expect from a domestic violence agency, on the other hand, from a financial, I mean, are we just saying you can coach people? I will say. Like what to look for and how to coach them? We try to do a little bit of both. We at Laurel House are very lucky that we have gotten a lot of donations over the years in terms of gift cards and monetary donations. When we get gift cards for grocery stores or for gas stations, I might be able to then give a survivor enough gift cards to cover this week's grocery bill. And then maybe that survivor can pocket the money that she would normally use from the shared account, put that in her own account Uh, to start saving on the side. Yeah, that's very good. That's one of the practical ways, one of the realistic ways that we can provide somebody with means to then go and achieve this resource on their own. What we try to do through the financial empowerment program, which I can talk a little bit more specifically about later, overall, kind of like what you just said, is we try to work to coach by bringing information and resources and tips to survivors and empowering them to use it. For instance, this grocery store separate bank account scenario. We might help with them to figure out a budget to help them pay off the debt that they've now accrued or to help them, again, how can you pay for your attorney? How can you pay for your childcare? 
now that maybe you're a single parent or the spousal support's not coming in as it should be. So it's such a it's such a wide umbrella because there are so many things, unfortunately, that take money and that the world requires of us to use money for. Sounds like small ways, but they make hopefully a huge impact. I know there are all kinds of cases, but when you're counseling somebody in a financial way, is that kind of on kind of a secret thing you're doing? In other words, they're hearing it, but the other partner doesn't know this was happening at all. In other words, like you said, something like separate bank accounts. Is that a quiet bank account this person has and they kind of keep the paperwork or whatever it is tucked under the couch or something? Absolutely. So that's usually when I have a client who's coming to me and they want to leave. They're still with their abuser. They want to leave. Usually one of the first things that we think about within a safety plan, of course, addressing physical safety. But then how are you going to be able to support yourself? A lot of times our first recommendation is to go and open up that private bank account with just your name on it. And my recommendation is usually that it be at a separate bank from where your maybe joint account or where your abuser goes to get their money. Yes. Usually when you go to enroll in person for a bank account, you can now state that you would like no paperwork and you would want everything to be paperless. However, let's just say that bank is pushing back. They're saying we really need an address and you're concerned that something might show up at your house. What we've had clients do in the past is sign up for a P.O. box. Sometimes that can cost anywhere from like 10 to like $20 for one month, or it might be even a three-month subscription for a P.O. box in your area. You can then use your P.O. box that is, again, secret to you. You can use that address when you're starting your bank account information. One case in particular I'm thinking of, we had a client do that where she went and opened up her own P.O. box. And of course, it was $25 for, I think, a three-month membership. And we gave her, you know, gift cards that month to help offset some of that cost of $25 coming out of any of the other accounts that her abuser could see. And then she was able to start rerouting all of the really important documents that she couldn't turn off the mail coming to the house for it kind of helped her to be able to prepare even a little bit more on top of setting up her own bank account. That's really smart. I was wondering about that. People really have to be kind of, the word that comes up often is sneaky. I like to think of it as we're being very strategic in planning our escape. There are so many people I've interviewed, so many people I've met, talked with when they were victims, when they were still in that victim part of their lives, trying to make their way into becoming a survivor. But so many of them, for some reason or another, I guess maybe of being caught, maybe that's the reason, but they're hesitant to go to a domestic violence agency or call a hotline and do those type of things. I guess fear of being Mm -hmm. found out, I suppose that's probably way up there. Maybe some of it is even just not wanting to share this. You know, they're, they're living... They're living with this alone. You know, a lot of their family members don't know. Some of their friends Mm -hmm. don't know. And so I'm so glad we're having the conversation because the financial area is such that once that part of your life is is going into a tailspin and someone else is controlling it and making it go there, you know, then it gets away from you and it's very hard to get that fixed. Yeah. One piece of information I ran into was that abusers seem to be horrendously into mishandling the money of the house, even though they want to control it. On the other hand, they're not good at it. I'm so happy that you brought that up. One of the reasons why I reached out to you this most recent time to talk about financial abuse was because I had heard a couple of your more recent interviews mention that behavioral pattern where their abuser was, turns out, in tens of thousands of dollars in debt and 
either using money on substances or gambling or just in poor ways. And as soon as I heard that within your interviews, it really resonated with things that I've heard in the counseling office with my own clients. When we dig a little bit deeper into the financial part of the relationship and turns out there's multiple credit cards that are maxed out, that are in collections, and that have both partners' names on them. And so now the survivor's credit score and credit history is, like you said, going in a tailspin, and they didn't even know it. And I want to make a point about what you just said. I interview these people, and I hear these type of things, like both names are on the account. She has no access to it, and he's running it into the ground. If anything, drilling through the ground deeper and deeper. And I'd have to say it just, I'll say it kindly, makes me very unhappy when I hear about that. That is so evil to do that, to, to wreck someone else. One thing to wreck your own credit, to wreck another person, to put them deeply in debt with probably no intention of ever getting it fixed, you know, because that's just, that's part of what I do. That's yep. just part of what I do. It's almost like they can, which is what we hear happen so much in these, in these stories, but they can come in, kind of blow things up for lack of a better term, and yes. then walk away. And the survivor is left dealing with the aftermath. And again, it's one thing we can work on the trauma of physical or emotional abuse with financial, especially credit scores. I mean, things stay on your report for seven years. That's a long time that you might be denied access to a loan when that could impact your ability to go to school, to get a job, to get an apartment, to buy a vehicle, to transport yourself and your kids. So the financial aspect of abuse is so pervasive and it takes years to rectify. Every time I run into that part in a in an interview with somebody, it just it just angers me. Mm -hmm. When you think across the board of abusive relationships, do you have a sense of what maybe what percentage of them have this financial misbehavior built into them? Mm -hmm. Is it half of them? Like how how many do you do you find this in? The research that we currently have, the most up-to-date number is about 98 or 99% of abusive relationships oh. have financial abuse occurring in them. Doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Exactly. Mm. So it is It is very pervasive. That amazes me. I, I don't know. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about putting a number on it, but I would never have thought that it was, let's just call it practically 100%. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. insane. And something I'll add to that too is, and it, it gets covered in a lot of the interviews that you do, but I really just want to double down that this financial abuse, this happens in any sort of socioeconomic status. So financial abuse can happen in relationships where uh, one partner is the one working and they're making $15 an hour and they're you know renting a one bedroom apartment, or it can happen in relationships where there are established career people and they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it can happen on any level. In some of the interviews I've had recently, there is this financial abuse, but the part that really blows my mind, I guess I can say, is that she's working and he's not, and he's the abuser. I'm so glad you brought that up. And in some cases, like yep. she might be working three jobs. I mean, I just interviewed somebody that she's working three yeah. jobs and he's not working at all, or he's pretending to be working. You know, you come to like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I got this job lined up and you know, I'm going to get this job with my uncle at this place. And later on, she finds out his uncle didn't work yep. at that place at all. And It's good that you bring that up because something that I came to realize when I was first running the financial empowerment program, which 
just to give a quick overview, it's a six session program. So typically it runs about six weeks. And what it is, is it's basically Mm -hmm. a group meeting and it's myself as the facilitator and different clients of ours who signed up to be a part of this program. And we just kind of go through exactly what you and I are doing right now, talking about financial abuse, understanding the impacts that this abuse might have had on them. A lot of people come to this group and they don't even realize that they were maybe financially abused until they see it spelled out. And then we go into kind of the repair process of talking about how do we budget? How do we look at our credit report and understand how to improve our credit score and kind of just connecting them to those resources to help set them up for a better successful future financially. But so in the first session, I was going through what is a financially abusive relationship. And one client, you know, raised her hand and said, like, this doesn't match my experience at all. I am the sole breadwinner in the house. And he stayed home every day and worked or and didn't work. And it was on me to pay for everything for the kids, pay our mortgage, pay all the bills, pay the cars, his car that he drives, pay for the gas. And so it became very clear, actually, in that moment, that that is also, too, the a way that an abuser continues to maintain power and control, because that woman, that client, she's not going to stop working. She's got to feed her kids. She's got to keep a roof over their head. We hear survivors a lot tell us about things, and the outside person might think, well, how come you didn't realize? How could you not realize? And then we hear these stories of how the abuser justifies things so well. We see this happen a lot where the justification is so believable in any abusive situation, but especially when it comes to the financially abusive situation. One example I'm thinking of, too, is when two partners want to move in together. And let's say they're going to get either a loan or they're going to sign a lease. I often have clients come in who their name is the only one on the lease. It's maddening how how they they're trying, you know, these poor innocent people are trying so hard to make it work. They're trying to keep everything running. They're trying to keep things flowing. They're trying to keep everybody happy and healthy. And the whole time they couldn't possibly be more taken advantage of. And some of the, the excuses that I've heard from clients that their abusers gave them were things like, well, if my name goes on the lease, they're going to do a credit check. And, you know, I have that one thing on my credit report from years ago. I don't want it to influence us getting the apartment or not. So why don't you just put your name on the apartment since you have good credit? That sounds very believable. They're doing it for you. They're doing it so that you get the apartment that you want. There's another one that I hear quite often too, where if you just kind of like the false promises, like if you just do this for me while I go to school or while I go through this training in a couple years, it's all going to pay off. I'm going to take care of us. You won't even have to pay the bills. There you go. I mean, you can see how people fall into that. You can just picture it. Absolutely. I've I've heard so many stories. I can't even attach names to them anymore because- There's so much overlap. There's so much of uh, the framework is just to fill in the pieces and then it it runs until one day it doesn't run very well. Yeah. In some of these cases too, the abuser may have broken the law at some point in time. So that's their excuse for why don't you go ahead and sign for this thing and it's Mm -hmm. all going to work out. You know how much I love you. And Yeah. That's a really good point too. That happens, I think, more than people realize. And 
just to your point of someone getting taken advantage of wanting to make this work, I often have a lot of clients who will say, I don't want to judge somebody from their past. And so if I were to tell them, no, I will not be the sole signer on our lease, that would be me judging them based on their previous record. That would be me telling them that they're not good enough because they have something on their record or their credit report. And so it's just that person, again, trying to be understanding, trying to see the best in people. And it ends up, unfortunately, not ending up the way that they thought it would. Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Liquid IV. Hydration doesn't get enough attention. It's not just about people running around a tennis court or doing an hour of Zumba or body pump. Proper, functional hydration is an all-day, everyday thing. And to help us stay hydrated, Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration multiplier. Sure, you can use Liquid IV before, during, and after playing pickleball, but you can also use it when you're starting to lose concentration in Zoom meetings or even after a night out with friends. One convenient stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water can hydrate you back to life two times faster than water alone, and you'll be getting essential vitamins plus three times as many electrolytes as leading sports drinks. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. My favorite flavor is Golden Cherry. It's one of 12 great-tasting flavors that make hydration pretty exciting. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WHENDATINGHURTS, all one word, at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WHENDATINGHURTS at liquidiv.com. There is an interview that will be coming out soon. It's a woman who's in Australia, by the way, mm. I was interviewing. Besides her accent, you could it sounds like it just happened down the street. I mean, mm. everything else is the same. Mm-hmm. This guy's overall claim was that he was trying to better himself. He was trying to make himself a better person. So whatever his speckled past was, similar to what you just said, is like, let's not focus on that. I got some rough spots. I'm working on them. So I'm going to stumble once in a while, but I'm going to get to a much better place. Yeah. And that would buy him time. Absolutely. I mean, after a while, years have passed. He hadn't gotten any better at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And the financial aspect was written all over that story too. I mean, this guy Mm. wasn't doing much of anything. And it seemed like the one thing he was really good at was smoking marijuana. Mm. And he would claim that that was the one thing that would calm him down. Otherwise, he was just really... Mm. It, it kind of helped dial his anger down. But he was dependent on that substance, on any yes. substance. And she's paying for it and he has to keep getting it. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she's trying to help him be a better person because she's a good person and she kind of signed up for this thing. And in the end, she's a survivor today. Thank goodness she's out of that mess. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other ways that maybe come to mind about how abusers use finances to further? gain power and control over people. The other ones come to mind that you haven't mentioned? I can shift now to talking about some more of the specific examples of certain tactics that are used. Um, And when we think about that umbrella, there's like three categories that are clearly defined. Oh, good. Um, And so one of them is employment-related abuse. Another one is coerced debt. And then preventing access to existing funds. When we think about employment-related abuse, That might look like sabotaging a person's employment by not letting them leave the house, taking their keys when they're trying to go to work, 
It might be harassing phone calls or text messages all day long, either on their personal line or calling the office or the the building in which they work at. Mm-hmm. I've also heard of, and it's pretty common, purposefully keeping a survivor up throughout the night by picking a fight, by yes. pretending that they're sick. That way it Im- impacts their ability to go to work or their performance at work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sabotage. Yeah, it's it's all about the sabotage when it comes to the employment. So those are the more kind of overt ways. And I know circling back to something that we had said earlier is there are also those more subtle forms of like the promises to take care of the other partner. You don't need to work. Don't worry about that. You should stay home and focus on the kids or focus on your your side gig that doesn't make very much money, but that you love doing. So it can be kind of veiled in this care and concern, but ultimately it is pulling you away from resources that would make you an independent person. So that is the employment-related abuse. Coerced debt, we talked a little bit about already. That essentially involves any sort of non-consensual credit-related transactions. So Mm -hmm. could be the credit cards, applying for credit cards, applying for loans, opening up any sort of account in the other partner's name without their knowledge or, again, without their consent or forcing them to do so by, again, coercing, if you don't do this, you don't love me. Ah, okay. I really need this loan to buy this truck so I can start this job. If I don't start this job, I'm never going to make us any money. So they put you in a position almost where you can't say no or it feels like you can't say no. And then two, like what we talked about, partner in particular running up large amounts of debt, whether that be from careless spending. It could also be gambling. It could be funding a substance use problem. It does not surprise me. I would say probably in like at least 50% of the clients that I have on my current caseload, which would be about like 15 clients, their partners have well over $20,000 worth of debt. And that's like a starting number. Like it's never just a couple thousand. It's like tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. That's horrible. It is. And again, a lot of times they don't know about it until they're going to leave and they're going to divide assets. Oh, yeah. that's so bad. And that's where we see people really get stuck oh. because when they separate, now this is their responsibility. And unfortunately, credit bureaus don't care that your partner was abusive. They just want their money. It's disheartening. That one took my breath away. I mean, what do you tell that person? I mean, that person Mm -hmm. comes in, gets an appointment with you, sits at your desk there Mm -hmm. and says, uh, I just got some bad news the other day. I'm out $20,000, $30,000 because my ex has been creating a sinkhole Mm -hmm. financially and my name is all over it. There's no quick fix to that. There is not. And that's That's where I usually start with people is that it's not a snap your fingers and it all goes away. I wish that we had the funds. I wish that there was an agency out there that had money to throw at those kinds of problems. My recommendation in the experience that I have, what I've seen happen a lot of times is if a client is working with an attorney throughout their separation or their divorce, the attorney can usually negotiate with the abuser's attorney if money hasn't gone to collections yet, they might be able to negotiate that he takes on the debt for, and again, usually a survivor has to then kind of sacrifice something. It might be one of the cars, it might be the 401k, it might be something that they would typically be entitled to. 
But when we come down to the nitty gritty, I have a lot of clients who say, I would rather build up my own 401k in my remaining years than take his and have to take on his debt. I've also had other clients where they find out that they've got debt in their name in collections and an attorney will sometimes then write a letter to or negotiate on the client's behalf with the collections office and come to an agreement on a number or a payment plan. I've had other clients, and this is more rare, but I've had other clients who they have family members that have access to money who they might offer to pay off the debt, whatever debt is in their name, and they can then work to pay back this family member on obviously a a more lower interest or no interest payment plan. So again, none of these are a super quick fix. And I know, like we said, people are not always ready to go and get professional help, whether it be from a domestic violence agency or, or any other outreach office. But just taking that step to ask about what your options are, you might hear something or learn something that you wouldn't be able to figure out on your own. Good. And that's, and not just financially, you know, there's so many things a domestic violence agency can, things that might occur to you days from now or months from now, a year from now, like, oh my God, why didn't I do that? Mm -hmm. Domestic violence agency people, so many of them, they have a reason why they joined up. Of all the career fields, domestic violence agency, most of the ones I've met have been in relationships that were unhealthy know that were kind of scary, unhealthy, abusive. If not that, they have friends. They've they've had friends who were in these. They've had relatives that have been in these. There's a reason why they locked into that being their career field. I mean, they're really into it. Yeah. And I'm going to make that jump that I doubt very many people get into that career field to make a lot of money. <laughs> they're really doing it because they really want to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. they they're going to do something that is tangible. They're going to do something that's very real. They're going to see change. That's what they go there for, to, to see it. They don't always see it, but that's mm-hmm. they're motivated to be helpful. I mean, that's what that is. So yep. if somebody's out there suffering with this or thinks that they're suffering with financial abuse, mm-hmm. being on the, the receiving end, mm-hmm. better to sit down with somebody and be enlightened about all the different possibilities. Which leads me to the question, and that is, it's one thing to talk about once the financial boat is sinking. The other one is, what are some ways that come to mind, ways people can prevent economic dependence, therefore that other person can't sink you financially? The first and most important thing that always comes to my mind is I cannot stress enough the importance of keeping a separate bank account always. Even if you're married, if you're in a long-term relationship, always, always having your own bank account. I will double down on that and even say, if you're a working individual and you have a steady paycheck coming in, that paycheck should be routed to your private bank account. And then you and your partner can mutually agree upon what percentage of your paychecks are going into the joint account. And the reason for that being Once someone's name is on that bank account, they have as much access to it and rights to it as you do. So if you and I open a shared bank account and I put a million dollars in there and you put one dollar, you could take a million and one dollars and run off tomorrow. And it's too bad, too sad for me. Are you saying that you think it's a good idea, even in what we might call a good and healthy marriage, Mm -hmm. to have separate bank accounts? Is that what you're saying? Always. I think we can't discern. I mean, obviously, that's why we're here talking about the epidemic of domestic violence and dating violence. But we have a hard time discerning what is going to happen a year or five years or 10 years down the road. 
And I don't want anyone to get to a point 10 years down the road where they say, well, shoot, if I had just kept that private account or my separate bank account, I might not be in this pickle. Because if we have it from the get-go and we keep it and we continue to let it build, we have a safety net to fall on no matter what happens. Whether, what if you're, not even if there's abuse present, what if your partner's bank account gets hacked and their money gets wiped out? That would be your money too. Mm -hmm. So it provides safety, I think, for whatever might come up, but especially in the context of dating violence, domestic violence. Oh, okay. That money that is just yours and just has your name on it could be the difference between escaping or feeling trapped and like there's nowhere to go. So separate bank accounts is, is I think, like I said, one of the most important and probably the first piece of, of advice that I would give to somebody. Something that I would encourage everybody to take advantage of. We have access to get a free credit report with no impact to our score once every 12 months. Even if you're someone who doesn't use a lot of credit, you don't have many credit cards or loans in your name, take it out because that's how you could spot not only a partner, you know, doing things behind your back with your credit, but also any sort of fraud, any sort of mistake that could be in your name and impacting your financial future. It's better to have those reports and know what's going on there than have no idea. Because I have clients who are walking in now who are in their mid-50s, sometimes 60s. They've never seen a credit report not that that's their fault. They didn't know it was an, an option for them, but we finally get that credit report and there are things on there that they have no idea what it is. Now we have to go through and figure out, was this legitimate? Was this something that was done to you and you didn't realize? It, it takes away sometimes the uh, options that you have in terms of fighting it. The thing about separate bank accounts, mm -hmm. If somebody's in an abusive relationship, that must be loaded with so much danger. You know, if that other person got wind of that, I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. things that that person would ignite on, but, but that one has to really be handled so carefully. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's something that we talk a lot about when we first start safety planning and thinking of when is a time that a survivor might typically be leaving the house? Could they leave a couple minutes early? Could they and stop at a bank? Could they have a friend or a family member go and pick up their kids for them that day and then themselves go to the bank and open up an account? The family member would pick up the kids, let's say. Let's, yes. you know, let's, let's say I pick up my kids usually at 3.30. I would have my family member go and pick up my kids for me instead. It seems like I did it, but I was really at the bank. Is what you yes, said. exactly. Yep. So it's a cover. I see. Someone else could run to the P.O. box, too, for you, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, and it's not as common, but sometimes we've had family members and friends of clients who are willing to, you know, take whatever money that they are able to accumulate and kind of squirrel it away for them. That way they don't have to worry about opening up a bank account or, you know, keeping that money in a safe place for them. That's, I think, best case scenario if you've got someone like that in your life, but that is not always an option. And so... That's why we do try to work on finding ways for survivors to be able to do that themselves. You're absolutely right. There is always risk involved with separating yourself or distancing yourself from an abuser. So we need to do it as carefully and as considerately as possible. That is great advice. Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Liquid IV Sugar Free. What do I like most about Liquid IV? Maybe it's how they make everyday hydration easier than ever. 
One convenient stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster than water alone. Or maybe it's the new sugar-free flavors like white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. Or it could be liquid IV has three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV, sugar-free, has no artificial sweeteners and zero sugar, so you get a nice sweet taste without the calories or raised glucose levels from sugar. Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier is a non-GMO electrolyte drink mix that utilizes the science of cellular transport technology to deliver water and key nutrients into your body faster and more efficiently than water alone. That way, whether you're playing a sport, doing Zumba, or you're just making your way through another day at work or at home, you stay hydrated more efficiently. And here's a nice offer. Get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any variant at liquidiv.com and use this code when dating hurts at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code when dating hurts at liquidiv.com. Oftentimes, when somebody's in a relationship, they're on the receiving end of the abuse. A lot of times, there are warning signs or red flags that might be there, but if they aren't coached a little bit, they may miss them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now they probably know they're living in a world with this other person. They're living in a world where things don't feel right. They don't get to make the call on very much. You know, they're being told what to do. And sometimes the other person just gives them a look and they have to fall in line or mm-hmm. run out and get me a glass of water, whatever it is, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, does sometimes once, the, once those relationships get going in the wrong direction, they keep going and it gets worse, of course. But what kind of red flags might someone spot from your coaching that maybe on their own, they would just not get, just Mm. not catch on? So like most red flags, they tend to fall on a spectrum of some more subtle behaviors to the more extreme overt behaviors. So for instance, a more subtle red flag that I would encourage people to look out for is the comments or the criticism on spending, on spending habits, what you choose to spend your money on. What that tells us is this person is really observing what you're doing with, let's say, your money. Uh So that is really the first place that I encourage people to start. The next thing that I think often about is someone's job status. And like, let's say when you're first meeting them, to me, what sticks out is if someone doesn't have a clear defined job that they can say, this is what I go and do during the day or during the night or whatever, whatever time it is that they work. If it kind of turns into one of those vague, I do some work here, I do some work there. That is something to keep in mind. And especially as you start getting more into the relationship, if you notice that they're constantly between jobs or work is great one week and not the other, that means their income is a little bit more unstable or variable you know, what kind of an impact does that end up having on you as the survivor in this case, maybe? And for instance, like if you have a partner who does have a varying income, because sometimes, especially with like laborist jobs, that does happen, especially during weather, during particular seasons, and when weather changes happen, work might fluctuate. But what are their spending habits like in those periods where money is a little bit tighter? Are they still spending the exact same amount of money and expecting 
you as the full-time working partner to supplement where they're short? Are they being mindful of how much money they're bringing in and then tailoring their spending habits accordingly? Mm -hmm. That gives a really good indication of how mindful they are about money and also how considerate they are about how much you might have to be supplementing them during those times. Another red flag that I think about that probably everybody is familiar with at this point who's listened to your podcast before, but love bombing. I hadn't thought of that in this context. That's good. Yeah. In the context of a financial red flag is, let's say you're just starting to see somebody and you're going out on dates and it's thought to be very chivalrous to be offering to pay for dates or paying for very extravagant gifts or dates of things of that nature. That is something that I would really take into consideration of where is this person getting all that money? And unless they have a really, really good explanation as to why they might have just so much spending money, that to me is a red flag that this person spends carelessly and without much consideration especially, you know, given the context, like if it's a first date and someone's dropping hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars on an experience or a really fancy meal, that to me is a clear sign of some sort of love bombing, some sort of trying to prove I can take care of you. I'm highbrow, that sort of a thing. I guess there are probably other kind of gaslighting ways Mm -hmm. that people use money to kind of misrepresent reality, wouldn't you say? I certainly think so. And I I love the way that you're describing by using the word misrepresenting, because that's exactly what it is. You're being sold a facade, but you don't know that's what it is. Yes. And I think it would be really hard to walk around in our world as a person living your life, assuming that everybody was lying or had some kind of secret hidden behind what they're showing you. That's why I think it is just so important to encourage people to have their thinking caps on, to be curious about where things are coming from. I won't go as far as to say suspicious, because I think that can really hinder our ability to enjoy what we're actually experiencing. But if you start to think like, this seems too good to be true, or this isn't really adding up, or this seems really unlikely given what else I know about this person... Like if someone's saying that they're bringing in an absurd amount of money every week or every two weeks, but yet they're never at work or they're always available, that doesn't add up. I mean, that sounds brilliant. I want that job, whatever it is, but chances are it's not real. You're right. If you are on the receiving end of love bombing where everything's just doors are opening and it's wonderful and we're not going to the same old restaurant, you know, we're going someplace where this guy is bringing out the big card and paying for things. And it has a nicer car than any guy you've ever been around before. If all this is just too good to be true, that's because it isn't true. Then again, you know, one of the things that's a warning sign that has kind of, it's come my way. I hadn't seen this somewhere in research I've done or things I've looked up anyway. And I need to kind of freshen up the Mm. list of warning signs because of this. But one of them is a relationship that is very much speeded up. Okay, so things that let's say if there isn't such thing really as normal, but in some kind of a flow of a relationship where somebody might say they love you, you're hearing it in Mm. the first week or two. And it's like, love me, you barely know me. But a lot of things, like you say, whether it's somebody's gifting you and at the end of week two or Mm -hmm. week three, you have the new iPhone, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, this guy really, uh, he must think the world of me because he's really going deep with this stuff. And it's like, well, Now he's really laying a trap for you 
you know, and I know you don't want to believe it because this guy's such an upgrade from mm-hmm. the last bunch, mm-hmm. you know, so. I had a client who she is divorced and she met a guy on a dating website, I believe it was. I don't even think it was an app. I still think it was kind of more traditional website. Um, she met this guy and mm-hmm. they start talking. And within the first couple of days, he lived in a different state. He drove many hours to come see her and kind of framed it as, I'm so busy, but you just seem so amazing. I really have to come meet you in person. Great. So they they meet and things go well. And so they agree to start going into this relationship together. He still lives in another state. And so they are now commuting back and forth over state lines, many state lines within the span of a week. Then we get two weeks in and he says, I have to go on a business trip to Miami. Come with me. I'll pay for you. And that sounds like a really great offer, right? Who wouldn't want to go on a weekend long trip, all expenses paid to Miami? But what jumped out to me immediately was, you just met this person, and they are willing to spend that much money on you. Either they do this all the time with anyone, or they're spending money that they don't have. Yes. Needless to say, that relationship didn't end up working out. Over time, it came out that he was very controlling, very manipulative, very jealous, but painted himself as this wonderfully hardworking, caring willing to drive multiple hours through the night to come spend an hour with you type person. And it just wasn't what it was promised to be. Yeah. As soon as I remember hearing trip to Miami, I'm thinking, oh no, oh no. You can see it coming. Yeah. It puts me in mind of if you were standing at the top of a mountain and you see one train track below and you see one train going east and one's going west and they're going really fast. Um, Look up ahead because uh, anybody watching this, uh, this isn't going to be good. Mm-hmm. You're getting showered with all kinds of things yep. way too fast, way too big. And again, too good to be true. One other thing that just popped into my head too, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. General warning thing to look out for is, again, if a partner wants to move in with you and they are really pushing to move into a shared space that is way beyond what you would be able to afford on your own, even if their name is also on the lease. I still think that is something to really, really consider because I've had a number of clients who share an apartment with an abuser. The abuser ends up leaving or getting kicked out of something of that nature. They stop paying their half of the bills. And even though it's affecting the abuser's credit score and you know evictions are now being listed on their credit report, they don't care. They're willing to kind of take the hit as well as hurt their their victim as well. So I think really just keeping in mind, if this person lost their job for a couple months or moved out or wasn't around to pay their part of the rent, what would I do? Would I be able to sustain this? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is blatantly no, I would really urge people to just be a little bit more cautious on signing their name on any documents like that. Unfortunately, a lot of the people you see, all of these things have happened already, yeah. right? This This thing has been unraveling their lives mm-hmm. have been unraveling by the by the time they call Laurel House or call to a domestic mm-hmm. violence agency, right? They're they're in pretty deep mm-hmm. in a bunch mm-hmm. of areas, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I have another yeah. client I can think of too. She's I think gonna be in her mid sixties this year and was with her abuser for thirty eight years. They got married, they had a wedding, they lived together. He owned a very successful business. So she didn't have to work. She could do what she needed to do throughout the day, enjoy her hobbies, enjoy raising their daughter. 
she recently left him, but has nothing. And she's tried to start the divorce process. And it's appearing that he might have never filed the marriage certificate, the marriage license. Oh, so, you know, she's going to these attorneys and they're saying, I need a copy of your marriage license to start a divorce process. And it is nowhere to be found. That means she's now having to go a very, very lengthy and expensive process of trying to file for common law marriage. But that is not always a guarantee, especially depending on what state you live in and what year you got married. That is one of the more clever ways in which I have heard a person, an abuser, evade owing their victim anything by just not filing the marriage certificate so that technically they don't get any of your assets. Do you have a sense in a relationship that has existed that long when the abuse appeared? Well, from this client's point of view, looking back now, they can see it probably began almost instantly. And what they were recollecting as the good times were actually just that was the stage of love bombing. They didn't recognize that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, they, if they've been married for like 30 something years, it's probably been, let's say they've been married 38 years. She said it's probably been 37 years of continuously turning up the heat on that control, on that manipulation, again, to the point where she's now been out of work for 38 years, wants to re-enter the workforce. Yeah, it's, there's nothing to put on her resume, unfortunately, that employers want to see. Ugh. It's gotten her into a really difficult spot. And unfortunately, one of the only ways to go in which she's going to get what she deserves is the legal route, which costs money. Money she doesn't have much of. Exactly. It's a really tough spot. That's where the more people understand financial abuse and understand just how pervasive it is and how significant the impact is, hopefully we can prevent it from getting to that point. You walk into a counseling office, we can work on the emotional aspect, the psychological aspect of the abuse. The financial is something that takes a lot more work and hopping over barriers to try to overcome. Those are really remarkable stories doesn't get enough attention. And I'm glad Mm -hmm. we're doing this for that reason. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you've really given us a full, you've given us a whole spectrum of things to think about, Mm. things to do up front, things Mm -hmm. to do while you're in the relationship and and then coming out of it, besides the power of prayer, you know, in time, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a long haul. So like with so many of these things we talk about, not getting in the wrong way right from the very beginning is the best advice you can give to people to keep the most amount of people from having it happen to them mm-hmm. right there. Absolutely. One thing I'll add just resource-wise, if, if anyone listening is looking for support on kind of where to start, of course, you say in all your episodes, reach out to maybe your local domestic violence agency or the national network. Yes. But if you're looking for resources specific to financial abuse, I would encourage people to check out the National Network to End Domestic Violence, their website, I believe, is nnedv.com or .org, quite possibly. And they have an entire section on their website dedicated to understanding financial abuse. They've actually partnered with the Allstate program, which has now an entire sector called the Purple Purse Foundation, which they've poured a lot of resources into creating programs and outlines and curriculums for survivors of domestic violence and intimate partner violence to help put themselves on a better financial track, whether it's to leave an abuser or after leaving an abuser. NNEDV is where I would tell people to go and check that out. NNEDV. Yes, I definitely heard of them. Yes. Mm -hmm. When you said Allstate, that's the insurance company, right? 
Mm-hmm. That's a really great thing yeah. that they're doing. Yeah. Unfortunately, they could keep very busy with that because there's so much yep. of this around. Again, the stereotypes. They think of domestic violence happening in some other neighborhood. They think it's socioeconomically down, mm-hmm. not where they live, maybe. Mm-hmm. Just think it's other groups, it's other races, other ethnic groups, other religions, or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. They, they don't picture it coming to their street. For that reason, a lot of people don't pay much attention to the warning signs and they don't pay much attention to any of this because it doesn't really apply to me mm-hmm. until the day you find out that, yeah, it really does because somebody in your family or somebody at work who's a good friend of yours is is really caught up in it. And you're thinking, I can't be much help because I've never really thought I needed to pay attention to this. Yeah, so Absolutely. Yeah. Emily, thank you so much for bringing forth all those things that you've learned since you've been at Laurel House and, you know, all the interactions you have with people have to be immensely helpful. You know, you can't wave a magic wand and get all better. For a lot of people, you probably give them good coaching before they get any deeper. So that's good. But I think the thing is that you can, you have access to so much good advice. And I know that I know Laurel House so well because I know them better than any domestic violence agency I've ever come in contact with. So that group of people is, uh, they're all angels living among us as far as I'm concerned. But I know you'll do everything you possibly can. And that's got to be a real comfort to people who can turn to Laurel House. And that's in the Philadelphia area. So not everybody, I have people listening to this from all around the world. So but there are domestic violence agencies locally everywhere, all around the world. So don't keep putting it off. If you need the coaching, if you need some advice, you can always go in and talk with somebody. And if you've heard enough or you don't think it applies to you or whatever that is, then say, okay, goodbye. Or call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE. Easy to remember, 800-799-SAFE. Give them a call. Talk with them. They can be immensely helpful, mm-hmm. and it's always a good use of, of time. And if you need help, sit with a friend and make the phone call, somebody who knows your situation. The big thing is don't go it alone. Mm. You know, you've gone it alone too long already. You want to be empowered again, and you want to slide from victim into survivor as fast as possible, as soon as possible. So, mm-hmm. Emily, thank you so much. You know so much, and you've shared it. And It's always a pleasure to talk with you besides getting all the good information. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. We at Laurel House are just so lucky to have you in our corner, always rallying for us and supporting us and sharing sharing what you can with people, like you said, not only in our area, but all over the country. Yes. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. It's always a delight. Mm. I'll just say this one thing here at the end, and that is way back in the very beginning when I met Beth Sturman the director of Laurel House. She saw something in us, in my family, in our tragedy. She embraced us from the very beginning. She probably does that with everybody. Mm. She embraced us at a time when we really needed it. I probably never would have written the book. I probably wouldn't have done the audio book version. I probably wouldn't have done the podcast. None of that would have happened. It all really stemmed from meeting her and feeling like We could take our tragedy, we could do something with it, use the emotional energy and help other people. Mm. And I'm not sure what number 
she is in the episodes, but I got a funny feeling. She's like, it's very possible the second one's Beth. It I is. I really do think it is. It yeah. is. I okay. remember because when the interview had come out, we got the email saying, you know, hey, go check this out. It's a new podcast and Beth is on it. And I remember going and looking and it was, she was the number two episode. Right after the intro one. Yep. That's, uh, that's where she belongs, mm-hmm. right at the top. Mm-hmm. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. We'll be seeing you soon, I'm sure. Yep, okay. I will. Thanks to my guests for offering their stories on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is your platform where victims, survivors, and others who have experience with domestic violence can freely add what they have witnessed. Through these stories, although challenging to listen to, we underscore the prevalence and horrific behavior of abusers over their targets and victims. With knowledge comes enlightenment and empowerment. If you feel your story should be included on this podcast, please email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.